the scripture reading for today and taken in connection with uh, the summary of God's word that we find in uh, Lord's Day 40 is, first of all, Psalm 91. And after that, we'll be reading together from Matthew chapter 4, the verses 5 through 7. This is in connection with the sixth commandment today, the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Psalm 91 can be found on page 684 of your pew Bible. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high, because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. We'll now turn together to Matthew chapter 4. The verses 5 to 7. Matthew chapter 4, the verses 5 to 7. This is in the midst of the temptations of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's just been baptized, and God has placed his, his mark on him to show. This is my son. I have sent him into the world. We'll, we'll read the whole section here. Let's, let's begin at verse 1 and go to verse 11. But we'll spend a special time focusing on verses 5 to 7. Then Jesus was led, by, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. 
But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. We'll be focusing especially on the second temptation of Jesus Christ in light of this commandment today. Now we turn to Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a reflection on the sixth commandment. And if you open your books of praise, you'll be able to find that on page 555. What does God require in the sixth commandment? I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also, the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness towards him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. <clears throat> so far... Congregation loved by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Earlier in our Heidelberg Catechism, we confess the sentiments of the psalm that we just read in this way. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by His providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. 
We also read how leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, all of these things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Beautiful words, aren't they? Words to live by as we reflect on the psalm as well. Yet, then we run into different situations in life, and that brings up questions. We get the COVID protocols the church has put into place, for example. When we use such protocols to protect the most vulnerable among us in a church building, the immune-suppressed, those with a history of heart trouble, those most at risk over the age of 60, do they call this providence of God into question? Or maybe other things that we put in place in our lives. When we regularly take medication, when we buckle our infants into car seats, do we call the providence of God into question through those kinds of actions? Is it not true that God is the one who would lead us throughout life and that it would be within his control whether or not we run into situations that these things try to prevent and that he would choose to take us home. You may have heard celebrities making cracks at Christians who go through the modern healthcare system as if they're being non-Christian or untrusting for doing so. We read our psalm today and it speaks so beautifully of God's care. It speaks of how he will keep us from harm. Are they maybe right? How can we say that on the one hand and then put things into place like this on the other? Today we'll reflect on these questions in light of the fifth commandment under this theme, God's providence and our vigilance, a contradiction. And we'll look at the passage of Scripture that we see before us here today from Matthew chapter 5 in light of this commandment as well. We'll see, first of all, the temptation, secondly, the commandment, and third, the care. Our passage begins just after the anointing of Jesus at the Jordan River in preparation for his three years of public ministry. The actions of Jesus in the desert are commonly seen as a picture of faithfulness in response to the unfaithfulness of the people of God. The three temptations of the devil are a direct attempt that seeks to undermine that picture of faithfulness. God's display of Christ's faithfulness begins by highlighting who it is that leads Jesus to the place of temptation. Matthew emphasizes that it is the the Spirit himself who leads Jesus. The devil is not the one, the, the devil is the one who tempts him in the wilderness, but he is not led by the devil. It's not an accident or something that is outside of God's control that leads him to be faced by temptation. It's the providence of God. As with all temptations, God allows us to be exposed to, he is teaching us through them. In 
our case, he teaches dependence. He shows us our weakness. He teaches us where to run to find our strength. And it's no different with Christ. God is using Christ's temptation also to teach his people, to make a point to his people. He is highlighting Christ's faithfulness. Jesus was led into the wilderness for 40 days, our passage says. And he was faithful for those 40 days. In his faithfulness, his 40 days in the wilderness, they were, this faithfulness was set up in direct contrast to Israel's 40 years of wilderness faithlessness. In his fasting, he was also a picture of faithfulness. In contrast to Israel's complaining about food and their desires to go back to what God had called them to and to return to the cucumbers and other vegetables of Egypt, Christ rather remained dependent on the Lord through it all and pressed onwards in prayer, denying himself the opportunity to turn back. Instead, he returned at the end of these 40 days, resting on the sustaining power of his Father in heaven. Knowing the pictures that are being drawn here, the contrast that's being laid out here, and knowing who Jesus Christ is, the devil sets out to undermine him. The temptations of the devil are a direct attempt to try to destroy the ministry of Jesus before it even gets off of the ground. But he goes about it in a very roundabout way. He makes an appeal First of all, to how much more effective his message could be through shock value. The devil makes an appeal to Jesus' willingness to believe in the promises of his heavenly Father and then tries, use, tries to use those to make him compromise in his actions. He even gives him the excuse that he's trusting his heavenly Father. And every one of us can attest that, to that, right? The power of such a temptation if one wants something badly enough, it's very easy to find a reason to, to justify yourself and, and make yourself feel not so bad for, for compromising. And this is what he does with Jesus as well. He sees Jesus' great hunger and he aims at where he is the weakest, where he feels he is the weakest. And the question is, will Jesus follow this for the reasons that the devil has put out? Or will he continue in raising up that display before the people of God? Will he continue to recognize what his Father in heaven is doing in such a situation? Christ himself turns back to Scripture. He knows what God is bearing witness to through him. God has a message for his people and the Father has anointed His Son by His Spirit to show the world that His Son would be the one who would faithfully bear that message to the world. The message of His faithfulness, even in light of His people's unfaithfulness. The message of the coming of the kingdom of God in power. His focus, Christ's focus, is on what brings glory to God obedience to his word and understanding his word and in taking the lead 
so that all of the people of God will see and will also be able to follow. So three things are set up here by the devil in quick succession. In the first place, we see this temptation around food to try to undermine that picture of faithfulness with the temptation. Wouldn't it be easier to show your power and your rights as the Son of God rather than it would be to show faithfulness, this picture of faithfulness? The second temptation comes through, and it's a temptation around the question of what trust looks like. And the third is a temptation around power. Now, we could spend a whole sermon dealing with these and breaking them down, but today I want to focus on the second temptation in particular, the unwavering trust of Christ, recognizing what the devil is trying to do in the big picture and the unwavering trust of Christ, despite the suggestion that he would better show his faithfulness if only he trusted God more and just jumped. This brings us to the second observation we can draw from our passage, that it is in light of the commandments of God. In Christ's second temptation, we read, then the devil took him up into the holy city and he set himself on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point of the temple, and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Why would he do that? Well, Satan quotes our psalm today, Psalm 91. For it is written, he'll give his angels charge over you. And in his hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And what is Christ's response? Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The devil is saying, show the world that you truly do trust your father by throwing yourself off a rooftop. This will be the most effective display of your power in front of many witnesses. Scripture, after all, says that God will catch you. Don't you trust his providence? Have some faith. Jesus again responds with Scripture, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. This might seem odd to see it phrased in this way because in the way that we understand it today, we might think, when is it really a situation in which he's, he's standing on the pinnacle and, and God's having that temptation? Oh, you know, shall I, shall I or shall I not? Shall I or shall I not? That's not the picture that's trying to be painted here. The picture that's, that is painted here through this language is not first and foremost tempt, but that's just an older word for what we find in other translations today. Do not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. So how do we make sense of Jesus' response? Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Where does this response come from? What exactly would you be testing God on? To understand what is behind Christ's response, we need to first of all turn to the sixth commandment today, the commandment, you shall not kill. And then in a moment we'll see how it applies to the Old Testament section, uh, the, the Old Testament reference that Christ is making here as well within the framework of this commandment. 
as we turn our focus to the sixth commandment, we need to ask ourselves the question, is God simply interested in us not murdering each other? Or is there something deeper going on? Is there a principle tied in here that perhaps Jesus Christ has in mind as well? Our catechism certainly thinks so. It draws our attention not only to things that are physically, emotionally, and spiritually destructive, injuring, dishonoring, hating, and killing, envy, anger, and desire of revenge. It also turns our attention to the heart of God, where the heart of God lies in this sixth commandment, the the promotion and preservation of life. Is it enough then that we don't kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, where does God's heart lie? He commands us to love our neighbor as ourself, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Is the catechism right here? If we look at the scriptures, we can see God's great concern for life. Take Proverbs 12, verse 10, for example. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. God has a heart for his creatures. He has a heart not just for their lives, but for the quality of life, calling his people to show genuine care to the animals that are placed in their care. The wicked man in the ancient world who drives, for example, his oxen into the ground with plowing and gives them no care at the end of the day of work might show mercy by choosing to beat his oxen less frequently on a day when they're doing particularly poorly. But what good is that to the animal? The animal is ultimately destroyed by how hard he pushes it. Whereas the righteous man would genuinely try to take good care of his animal, as he uses it in the ways that God allows, the wicked man has no interest in that. Beating it less just prolongs the creature's suffering, and as such, even his mercy is cruel. Now, if God calls us to look out for our fellow created creatures on this earth, how much more is that not true for people? God cares for all of his creatures. He has concern for their life. This doesn't just apply to animals. This applies to people. God says in Matthew 6, verse 26, Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Jesus makes this statement in the context of God's concern for the life of his people. How their life is not outside of God's care or his reach. God has concern for human life too. And he desires his people to have concern for the life of our fellow humans as well. He has concern for the life of the poor, 
the widow, the sojourner, the oppressed, and you. Psalm 82, verse 4, rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Philippians 2, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. The commandment you shall not kill is just an expression of one part of that. However, as we consider God's heart for his creation and his people, we can see that it carries so much more weight than simply not killing. When it comes to our disagreements, for example, as our catechism brings up as well, our disagreements, perhaps especially in talking about everything COVID, but also plenty beyond, we can recognize that plenty of murder can be done with the tongue. Related, we, can, we need to strongly guard our hearts and our tongues, to reflect carefully on what we say and write, the tone of our posts, the tone of our interactions with each other, the tone of our interactions with and our family, our conversations, are your words full of grace, seasoned with salt? Or do you find them becoming bitter and caustic? In this day and age, we need to be strongly reminded by our God that murder is not just taking a life, but it can be done in how we speak. That is care for life and the affirmation of life is not just in the way that we act but also in the way that we speak to each other and how we think of one another and if we sense division dissension and hard feelings in our hearts to take a step back and take a good hard look at ourselves proverbs 10 verse 11 the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence to recognize the desire of God for the affirmation of life here as well and to seek to be that fountain of life also through what we say. And so as the people of God, we need to keep his heart for his creation in mind and for our fellow human beings in mind as we deal with each other as well. Our heart needs to be in line with God's call for the preservation of life with his tenderness towards us in preserving our life and for caring each other and for building each other up physically, emotionally, spiritually, through our words, thoughts, and actions. So, taking all of that into account then, how does God's heart for his creation and the perspective that God has on the preservation of life play into this confrontation between Christ and the devil. This brings us to the third thing that we'll look at in our passage, the care. Our psalm speaks beautifully of God's concern for human life. Through the terror of the dark things of the night, for you boys and girls who might be scared of the night, through the frightening things in the dark, through war, through plague, through the destruction that lays waste at noonday, our psalm today reminds us of his 
sovereignty, the fact that God is in control, the fact that God is there in all of those areas. It reminds us of his protective hand, of his protective care. It comforts us with the knowledge that every day is in his hand. And that if he doesn't want to take us home, then nothing can touch us. Plague, famine, war, or disease. And if he wants to take us home, nothing can keep us from coming to himself. God is concerned about our lives, especially because he himself is the author and sustainer of life. And he calls us to recognize it as his precious gift and not to wrest control of it out of his hand. To acknowledge, to recognize his sovereignty. And we can see attempts in our world to try to take control of life through, for example, euthanasia, through eugenics. We can think of Iceland in which they recently said that they are finally now Down syndrome free. No more babies with Down syndrome are being born. That's not because they have found the solution to it, but it's because they are aborting, killing all of those children. Through euthanasia, through eugenics, and through abortion, or more, they try to wrest control out of the hand of God. Yet to do so would be sin. It's sin because it expresses discontent with the life that God gave, the way that God chose to give it, and the timing that God chose to bring life into the world. And it demands that we take that control out of God's hands and that we place it in our own hands. Yet though it's very clear, this psalm is very clear on God's concern for us, and on God's desire for us to recognize all of life as being in his hand according to his providence, there is one thing that it does not do. Psalm 91 is not a call to recklessly endanger ourselves or to cause death to others. And Jesus himself recognized the truth of that when the devil encouraged him to risk his own life. For our Lord to throw himself off of the pinnacle of the temple would not have been an expression of faith. It would not have been a trusting gesture. Rather, it would be saying to God, I know you value life and have called us to value life, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm more interested in seeing if what you say about providence is true. I'm not going to take your promises to care for me on faith. Instead, I'm going to ignore what you had said about the value you place on life to test what you said about promising to take care of me. To take the jump off of the pinnacle of the temple would literally be putting God to the test. And Jesus wants his people to think about what the devil is doing in light of history. By saying you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, Jesus draws our attention to the first time this quote was used, Deuteronomy 6 verse 16. There Moses was speaking to the nation of Israel when they were doubting the providence of God. 
This happened during the time of their desert wanderings before they settled in the promised land. They were thirsty and they grumbled against Moses. They doubted that God would supply water and they demanded Moses to do it for them. Their response to their thirst was an occasion of rebellion and disloyalty to the Lord, to Yahweh. Rather than trusting on God's promises, they said in Exodus 17, verse 3, why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Notice they say that Moses brought them out. They reject the providence of God, reject God's existence in their deliverance and leave it to Moses to prove otherwise. Rather than trusting God's providence, trusting God's care for their lives, which brought them out of slavery and has sustained them through the desert so far. Rather than trusting God's providence to see them through to the promised land, they tried to use pressure to force a change. They say, if nothing happens here, it proves that your intention, Moses and God, was to let us die in the desert. We are forcing your hand, now prove us wrong. Jesus is comparing what the devil is saying by encouraging him to test God and throwing himself off the temple to what the people in the desert said. Rather than being an expression of faith, to put himself at risk by throwing himself off the building is a rejection of God's love for life. God's promises to sustain the life of his people because he loves them and he, his creation and his upholding of it. And again, we can see it's more than just that. It's trying to use pressure to force God's hand. If I throw myself off and nothing happens, it proves that God's intention is not to preserve his people. It's putting God to the test. This again is directly in contradiction to what the psalm the devil quotes is actually getting at. Psalm 91's focus is the preservation of those whose confidence is in God. It is that those who live a life of communion with God are constantly safe under his protecting wing. That they may preserve a holy security of mind, a, a peace of mind at all times, that he will be their refuge and their rest forever. That he will carry them through and he will take them to their home. The key verse, verse 9, highlights that beautiful truth as well. Because you have made the Lord, Yahweh, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you. Verse 1, it's only he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High that will enjoy this kind of security. Only he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High that shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty in our New Testament times, the language of dwelling in a secret place points to Jesus himself. Only those who come to know the love of God in Christ Jesus will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Only those who rest on him and who confess that to live is Christ and to die is gain are able to and will come to know that kind of security. They will know the provision of a God who takes their life into his hands, who values it and who preserves them. A God who sees their lives as precious, 
A God who knows the hour of their death and teaches his people through the Holy Spirit's word in, in Psalm 116, verse 15 also. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Our response to God's care and God's preservation should not be one of seeking to risk our own lives or of one in times of uncertainty to begin pressuring God. I'm sure that all of you have been given gifts at some points in your lives. If you give a gift that meant a lot to you, you would like it to be valued by the person who gave it to you, would you not? Our response should not be to treat the gift of God lightly. Rather, it should be to acknowledge it for what it is. Our response should be to nurture it in ourselves and to make the most of every moment that we have here on earth for the sake of his kingdom and to nurture it in each other for the sake of his kingdom. To seek to be joyful and lively life promoters through our words, through our actions, and even through our thoughts. Because God has given us life and he has preserved us and continues to preserve that life in us. He now calls us to eagerly and joyfully manifest his care in the preservation of life in the world before his face. To bring this into the real world with one example, here in Owen Sound Church, we have chosen to put protocols into place for the safety of those who are immune compromised among us. And there are actually more of those than you think who are among us. And not all talk about it. Those with underlying heart conditions, those with chronic health concerns, those with suppressed immune systems for other reasons, those over the age of 60, all those who are particularly vulnerable. In this building among God's people, when we know that there are those who are especially vulnerable, it's all the more reason to joyfully manifest this love for life in the world, for the life that God has given to his creatures in the world. Certainly we can't wrap ourselves in a bubble in this world. Every time that we step into a car, for example, there's a small risk to ourselves and to those around. And yet even in those cases, we go through driver's training. We make sure that there are airbags. We buckle our infants into their car seats. We take care. We put this principle into place to love our neighbors as ourselves, as our catechism says, to protect him from harm as much as we can. As a church, we have protocols in place to protect the members of the congregation and the communities around us, and this is a worthy goal. Perhaps you still feel, after thinking on these truths of God, that as you stand before God in fear and trembling at his holy and awesome majesty, you are still compelled by other reasons not to accept such a decision. That you say, God, I cannot and still bring you glory. My doing so would dishonor you. Then in such a case, I pray that you would prayerfully meditate on these things in the week ahead and to bring them before God. That being said, our church's protocols are only one example. There are many more ways besides this that you can apply this to listen and to apply what God teaches us about his care for life. Putting aside envy 
hatred and anger. Let's seek to love our neighbor as ourselves. We can do this in so many different areas of our life, affirming life and encouraging life in our driving and what we consume before we drive, in our relationships with our husbands and our wives, in what we say to our classmates during recess or spare or how we raise our children. Seek to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness to each other in the midst of tensions and disagreements and to do good even to our enemies. A rundown again of question and answer 107. To go out of our way to be vigilant and eager in the promotion of life in all areas of our life. There is no contradiction between God's providence and our vigilance. There is no reason to fear as we take reasonable steps in all areas of our life to preserve our neighbors and our own life that we are somehow showing less trust in God. Rather, we are glorifying Him and we are honoring this gift that he, Him for this gift that He has given us. We do not test God's providence, but we honor His will for our lives. That may come out in different ways for different people when it comes to the countless corners of the hundreds of lives that are either sitting around us in church or watching from, from live stream. But we should be united in this, that in what we do, we seek to act in this way before his face because of what he has done for us and who he is to us, that he is our sovereign God, that he has given us the gift of life, and even more, that he has sent his son from heaven to obtain for us eternal life. That is how much our lives are valued by him that he sacrificed what was most precious to obtain for us eternal life. More than that, rejoice in the fact that our God does show, especially through the psalm and so much more besides, that he has a vested interest in our lives. Rejoice that he does care and that he continues to nurture and to sustain us. And seek the things that make for a gospel-centered, thriving before the face of God. And at the same time, we do not live in fear. We confess that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That no matter what happens, our times are in God's hands. That if he chooses, pestilence, wars, famine, and more will pass us by because he will cover us in the shadow of his wings. And if he chooses to take us home to him, nothing can stop that. And we are content with that because to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a life of peace of mind and security before God. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. Amen.